So pick your case. This term of the Supreme Court has brought forth some gigantic rulings that have a serious effect on our lives. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. And there's still a ruling I'm waiting on with the EPA that I think has more of an effect than everything else. But take a look. If you don't know what the past couple weeks have, have, have wrought, how about the law in Maine? The Supreme Court putting an end to a law that would fund secular but not religious private education. How about the coach being able to pray uh, after a football game? How about the Supreme Court striking down the New York gun laws and really putting forth the idea that constitutional carry is going to be the way of the future? And then, of course, the overturning of Roe versus Wade. But on the other side of that, you have these protests that took place at the homes of justices, the protests in front of the Capitol, you have the violence that took place after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and you have had the madness of the media apparatus and apparatchik uh, on all of this. So how does the court react? That's the question. William Jacobson joins us right now, Cornell Law Professor and the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com. This has been on my mind for the past couple of days. And, you know, I was expecting today that we would see uh, the, the result, uh, the, the decision in that case regarding the EPA, which would really uh, reduce the scope and the power of the, the agency class, if you will, that what I would I sometimes refer to as this fourth branch uh, of, of government. But when you take a look at how these big decisions were decided and the scope of them and the, the, the media magnitude of them, and you take a look at how these justices were treated, all we hear about is Chief Justice John Roberts being a guy who doesn't want to make the court political, and yet somehow it seems to me he's always making the court political. First to the idea of these decisions that I've just gone over, compared to other terms and, 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 and the past years, how co- more consequential are these compared to things uh, in the past five years? Well, I think nothing compares to the uh, abortion decision, the overturning Roe v. Wade. I mean, that maybe even bigger than the Obamacare decision back in 2012 or uh, same-sex marriage decision. Uh, To me, that's just so monumental because Roe v. Wade has been hanging over everything regarding the judiciary for 50 years, and now it's gone. What happens next is maybe a little bit up in the air, and it's going to be a state-by-state fight. But I I think this is the most consequential term that I can recall. Uh, First time, I think it's in over 10 years that there was a significant Second Amendment decision uh, reinforcing Heller and other decisions. So I think this has been, you know, the most consequential uh, of many terms, perhaps dating back to Obamacare or the, um, you know, same-sex marriage decision. But you witnessed and you watched and other members of the legal profession watched this intense pressure campaign because of the leak, where we still don't know the leaker, this intense pressure campaign against the justices. More than ever, it's fashionable to say, F. Clarence Thomas and this one and that one. You've got Democrats infuriated with the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg for not retiring earlier, so therefore they could have protected the court as, as they see it. So is the legal profession watching all this 
Are they concerned? I don't think so. I think things have become so partisan and so political that I think the, my sense of you know reading what law professors are writing, what the popular legal press is writing, my sense is people are frankly more interested in outcomes. I think there is a group of people uh, who are very concerned about an intense campaign that's been going on for years by Democrats to delegitimize the Supreme Court as soon as they realized they couldn't control it. They sought to delegitimize it. But I don't think that's a prevailing concern. I think at least what I'm reading, most people are concerned with the outcomes. And that's a reflection of how, you know, even the concept of representing unpopular uh, litigants is gone. I mean, there has been a concerted effort going back to the Doma Doma case. Paul Clement um, was the attorney there. Um, and what happened, uh, you may recall, is that the Defensive Mar- Marriage Act was being defended by the Department of Justice. And then one day, Obama decided our Justice Department is no longer going to defend the law because traditionally the Justice Department defends legislation because the legislature doesn't have its own attorneys to do that. So the DOJ does that. And they just announced we're not going to defend it anymore. So the House of Representatives had to go out and get their own counsel, and they hired King and Spaulding, uh, Paul Clement, one of the most famous conservative uh, litigator, Supreme Court litigators. And there was a boycott campaign against King and Spaulding. They threatened to boycott not just the law firm, but to pick it outside their clients. Their major client was Coca-Cola. Clement was forced to leave uh, King and Spaulding and set up his own shop. It just happened again. After Paul Clement won the uh, Second Amendment case recently at, um, I'm just blanking out on the name of the firm he's with, I think Kirkland and Ellis um, forced him out. That was He wrote an op-ed about that in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, so everything's political, and the pressure tactics that come to bear on politics now come to bear within the legal profession. Uh, if you are going to defend an unpopular unpo- client, meaning a client who is unpopular with the media and unpopular with the progressive movement, you're going to come under attack. So everything is politicized. Everything is outcome-oriented. Nobody cares that they have destroyed what was once a cherished tradition where lawyers defend unpopular clients that no longer holds sway. So I I don't think, I think the legal profession has been, you know, really poisoned by the politics of this. Talking to William Jacobson, Cornell law professor, the mind behind legal insurrection.com. So on this idea of poisoning, which I think is, is, very strong talk. Look, I, I've known you for a while. We've had these interviews now uh, for years, and and hopefully uh, we will continue to in the future. But that 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 I consider from you to be rather a strong talk. And I, outsider looking in, certainly watching how the Biden administration allowed Supreme Court justices to be threatened in front of Amy Coney Barrett's home, in front of Brett Kavanaugh's home, and others, these protesters engaged in these acts of violence. Somebody came to try and assassinate Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, you, you, you had uh, protesters tying their hands together, holding baby dolls that were drenched in, in, in red paint to look uh, like, like blood. John Roberts is a guy who concerns himself with how the court is perceived, the Chief Justice. Do these things, these decisions and these actions, is there a belief that this could change how Roberts 
runs the court, possibly uh, the cases that he takes on in, in the future. You mentioned it's the first uh, time we've had a significant gun rights case in a long while. It's because the court has decided not to take a look at cases in the past. Do you see more of that happening where Roberts isn't interested in taking any heat because he needs the court to do some uh, some damage control, if you will? I think it's out of his hands now. There's a 6-3 majority. He no longer, I mean, he has certain administrative powers and certain powers as the chief justice, but the concept of he had become, in a sense, the swing vote where he could decide, you know, uh, substantively what a result would be. He's no longer in that role. I mean, in the uh, Roe v. Wade case is a perfect example. He wasn't, he, he joined in the majority in terms of upholding the Mississippi law, but he was not one of the justices in the majority who ruled to overrule Roe v. Wade. So that's a a reflection that the prior tactic of pressuring John Roberts and hoping he will wilt under the pressure, as reportedly, we don't know if it's true, but those were the reports back in 2012, is that a pressure campaign by Obama himself and Democrats uh, against the Supreme Court over Obamacare caused him to switch his vote. We don't. That's not 100% confirmed, but it's been reported by people who claim to be close to the Supreme Court, including from the left, that that's what happened. Uh, and, and that created a perception that John Roberts could be pressured. And I think that probably contributed to whoever leaked the uh, Alito dis- decision, hoping that it could pressure the justices because re- – Reportedly, that happened with success in the Obamacare case, and it didn't happen because it's 6-3. It's not 5-4 anymore. Uh, but it, in terms of the decision, it's the, the decision from Roberts was to say that Dobbs— uh, it, it it should win that that legislation, if you will. Um, uh, but it's it, but it wasn't about overturning Roe. He split the baby in that. Right. He said he wanted to do he felt that the majority was going beyond deciding something they needed to decide. So he felt that you could say that uh, the law, the 15 week limitation uh, was valid. Perhaps you could say it because of medical advances. That's now the point of viability, whatever you want to say, that you could rule on the 15 weeks. You didn't need to go to Roe v. Wade and to Casey decisions, which the court did. Obviously, five justices didn't agree with that and felt you did need to go after the the underlying premise of the analysis of abortion cases. But that was, Roberts, a more incremental sort of thing. Only just limit yourself to what's absolutely necessary to decide a case. And, uh, you know, I could see from an institutional perspective why he would want that. But that would have just left this uncertainty in the law with more litigation, and they resolved it once and for all. Maybe not for all. Let's see where where the court is in a few years. But they resolved it at the federal level. And so I think that is the John Roberts' way is to not do anything too rash. On the other hand, how do you square that with his vote to uphold Obamacare? That was a monumental change that imposed really for the first time – the government's ability to tax people merely because you exist without you actually having to do anything and to force you to buy private insurance without you having actually participated voluntarily in any transaction. So that was pretty earth-shattering. 
So, uh, you know, but that is reputedly the John Roberts way is incrementalism. So that that John Roberts way has us looking at the future. And and does the court have an eye to the future, an eye to culture? Could could a John Roberts court, even though you, you can you can make and you think you make a, a fine point there that John Roberts doesn't have as much sway as he used to with how this court is structured now. But could they look for cases to give the other side a win is there anything that that from this from john roberts way of being that there could be a desire to say okay we did this 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 and this uh in this term this next term let's try and give the other guys a little bit something so people think well of us is there that level of politicking that takes place within the court i would not think so i would not think it would be expressed in such you know crass terms as you know you know, let them score a run because last inning the other team scored multiple runs. Uh, I, I don't see that, particularly with the current makeup of the court. Again, John Roberts' ability to influence outcomes is severely limited now. Now Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and the others sometimes go their own way. They don't. They don't move in lockstep. But for the most part, you have a solid five-member conservative majority with a sometimes six-member majority depending which way you know one of the you know six justices go uh, you know uh, gorsuch has been a dissenter in many cases or has gone on the other side in some cases so it's not lockstep but i, I think it's a very different court now that it's essentially six to three uh before i before i let you go um you know we don't know what this this epa decision is is going to be just yet but when you take a look at the cases that i brought up right new york and guns the praying uh coach the the main uh decision on funding of of schools and even religious schools and 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 roe v wade you've got a lot of power in those uh this epa one could you do me a favor in 60 seconds or less could could you give us a a kind of overview of what this case is about and and what the ruling could mean for us the EPA case, it's West Virginia versus EPA, and it's challenging. West Virginia is the lead plaintiff. There's another state. I forget which state it is involved in that. And uh, they're challenging EPA regulations that essentially seek to remake the economy by regulating you know, carbon emissions and regulating greenhouse gases and things like that. The argument is Congress never gave you this authority. Congress never told you to do this. Well, the hook that the Biden administration and other administrations have used as general enabling statutes under the Clean Air Act. And the question before the court is, is a kind of general enabling statute under the Clean Air Act enable the agency to essentially go off and do whatever it wants? And that's how we've really had this expansion of federal government. It's not through congressional legislation because Congress has a hard time passing any legislation. It's vague provisions in legislation that allow the permanent bureaucracy, the administrative state, which always leans towards its expansion of its powers, to keep going with unfettered. And that's really the issue here. So if the Supreme Court rules that, no, this kind of general enabling statute does not allow an agency to just go off and make major decisions, uh, decisions that normally would be the subject of legislation. It does not allow agencies to, in effect, legislate. That will have a ripple effect across the entirety of the bureaucracy. And while in the popular mind it's not as important as abortion and gun rights, in the legal world, in many ways, it's even more important. And you will hear howls of protest if they uh, 
overturn what the EPA is doing, because that will really affect this permanent bureaucracy, which a lot of lawyers live in as well. And that's why I think it's one of the most impactful things out there. William Jacobson is his name. Cornell Law Professor, LegalInsurrection.com, LegalInsurrection.com. Be sure to check it out, sir. Always a pleasure. Always appreciate it. More coming up. I'm Tony Katz.